Greetings and welcome to EHA Unplugged, the official podcast channel of the European Hematology Association, EHA. This is a special Lighting the Flame edition where we talk to some of our promising and active members in the hematology community. Our guests in this podcast series have volunteered their time to attend and facilitate the Lighting the Flame program where they mentor young trainees and medical students in their field of hematology. In this podcast series, they talk about their experiences in their field and give advice to those who are interested in becoming a hematologist. So sit back and enjoy the podcast. Disclaimer, this interview was recorded outdoors during the Lighting the Flame workshop in Romania in a wonderful location next to the fields and forest. Therefore, you may hear some cricket noises in the background. So welcome to this Lightning the Flame session where we're going to talk about how we communicate with our patients and caregivers and also a little bit about how we take care of ourselves as doctors. And um, to start with myself, I'm Kirsten Kreutbeck. I'm a professor of hematology at Rieserspital in Copenhagen, Denmark, working mainly with MDS. And please. Yeah. I'm Dr. Mutil Maas from Istanbul, Turkey. I work at the, the Istanbul University, Gerakosha Faculty of Medicine. I'm an internal medicine and hematology specialist, and I'm studying as a, a clinical researcher in, in the format in the, in the last six months to a year. I'm Miriam Belderbos. I'm a pediatric hemato-oncologist in the Princess Maxima Center in Utrecht, and also a research group leader then. So my name is Constanze Döner. I'm a hematologist working at the University Hospital in Ulm, Germany, and my major focus is clinical as well as research on myeloid diseases. So thank you very much. I think um, to start out with this, we I would like to hear a little bit how you manage to listen to your patients, uh, what they come with, uh, and at the same time uh, balance how you then will guide them. Do you see any challenges in this? Um, how how do you how do you manage such a, a conversation? So maybe I start. Um, so we had two really very um, fruitful and constructive workshops right now on the topic how to communicate with your patients. And it was interesting to hear that this is, I think, a very, very important point, listening to your patients. And I think the challenge here is to guide the patients when you, when, when you talk to them and you offer them to, in, to, to, to start with a conversation and what is the problem, what is the issue, um, that the, the, the challenge is to guide them a little bit through that you get the information you need, but don't interrupt them. And I think this gives them also a kind of feeling that they are respected by you, that you take them for serious, that they are in good hands. So the challenge I think for the students was and for the young residents how to find this balance that people are not starting to talk about everything and, and, and waving out into a space and you get lost as a doctor and we are always under time pressure. But I think this is a very important point. Listen to your patient and be polite and take out the information and guide him or her. And for me, summarizing is an important tool. So if someone, if a patient or parents in my case get, tend to get very elaborate, it sometimes helps to pull them back by summarizing what they've told me and say, okay, if I now understand what you've told me and then I summarize it to basically uh, explain to them or show to them that I've heard what they said, but also to 
narrow them down in their potentially extensive story. That is true. The, the speaking with patients and communication was one of the things that I was most afraid of as a medical student. And I really had difficulty organizing it in my mind before starting as a physician. But after I started, I found it easy when, when I saw that when I cared for the patient, actually, and really cared for the patient, it just got very easy. And, and within a few months to maybe one or two years, it just became a regular part of my life uh, to have good communication with patients. And have none of you met this patient that uh, sort of going in a completely wrong direction and want to talk about this very lot of time? And what do you that do? How do you how do you get out of that situation? In in Turkey, our education level for the population is very diverse. We have lots of illiterate uh, patients, and and on the other hand, we have just just as well as other countries, very educated and socioeconomically well patients. So we have to really adjust our behavior and the way we talk according to their uh, level of understanding. And I agree with you about the summarizing. I, I always try to summarize at the end. And the length of the summary, I try to arrange uh, to, the, to the level that the patient can keep in their mind. I try to prioritize what's more essential for those who I who I experience uh, forget most things and and try to to, to expand that for patients and caregivers that can understand much better. And of course, as a pediatrician, you're almost always confronted with at least two different levels of education, being the parents and the kids. Right? Yeah, yeah. So depending on the age of the child, I usually try and engage them in the discussion and actually summarize the part for the parents and say, well, this is what I understand so far, but summarize it. And then I explain it in a child language to the kid well, so that I simultaneously test whether I've understood what these parents wanted to tell me, but also engage the, the child in the discussion, which may have been too complicated for that. Yeah. And it's still for me. I think another polite way to not really interrupt, but to guide it in the in the right direction is, as as you said, I think just being polite and saying, "Oh, please allow me. Did I get this right?" And then ask a question that is coming out from all the information. Did you really have this diabetes since five years, or this might play a role here, or whatever? And then you 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 can focus again back on on the most uh, important information without being an impolite and say, okay, stop now. Um, we are talking about your family since 10 minutes. <laughs> yes. um, so I think you have to find a strategy um, to, 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 to stop the conversation going in the wrong direction. And I think every one of us has its own strategy and it's depending on the patient. Yeah. Thank you. I think this was very, very comprehensive. Uh, what about um, I mean, you have to to inform some some very concrete things to talk very logically sometimes, and then also balance that towards emotions. How how do you how do you balance emotions and, and logical thinking um, when you, when you communicate with your patients? I think this is a a very difficult issue because. Um, I think there is no black and white, there is no left and right, there is no correct and wrong. Um, 
again, this is depending on your own personality, how much emotion you can deal with, with your patient. And it's depending on the patient. Um, but I think what is what, what we have, what I have learned during my experiences in the communication with patients is that it's really helpful to have a kind of distance and you have to define the distance for your own, but you have to find the kind a way of, dist of how you distance from your patients and not getting too much involved in a, in a deeper relationship to him and don't take the problems of the patients home with you. You have to find a way when you leave the door in the evening in the hospital, it's your life. Yeah, it's your life and it's starting right now and leave it behind you. And if there are issues, I think you have to talk to your colleagues, you have to self-reflect or you have to get a feedback from your colleagues. Um, but the distance is very important. So on the other hand, emotions can get in the way of people's ability to understand or hear what you're saying, right? Because if someone's obviously upset or scared or angry or I don't know what emotion might be there, it can be useful to address that first. Um, in order for them to under be able to listen to the information that you're wanting to provide. No, that, that's for sure. I think we should, be, we, we should allow emotions from the patient side. It's, yeah. uh, it's for me more the question, how can I prevent myself to suffer with the yeah. patient because of the situation? Yeah. And I fully agree, you will get a lot of information out from these emotions and maybe you can solve some issues at the very beginning of such a, such a conversation. But for me, I, 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 I've learned to protect myself a little bit um, with this distance. Yeah. Can, can I ask, how did you do that as, I mean, as a young doctor? Because I think now maybe you're very experienced, right? But, but, but how, did you, how did you cope with this in the beginning? Was, was it more difficult for you? And what, what is your advice to the young ones? For me, if I was convinced that I, could, I did everything possible and I'd use the resources well, even though if I, uh, I would feel the emotion, it wouldn't disrupt my uh, judgment. That, but as, as Professor Donner said, it's very personal. For me, it, it worked well. As long as I was convinced I was doing the right thing, I was equipped with the uh, adequate knowledge and I was using the right resources, even the saddest emotion did not affect my judgment. I didn't feel it affected my judgment. But it's very personal. It, it could have and I should have, and if it had, I would have found ways to stop managing it. So what about the advice of talking to colleagues? I think when I was a young doctor, there used to be a nurse with me in the outpatients, you know, so we were always two who had, had, had heard this visit, so I could discuss the situation. Um, do you discuss it with nurses, other colleagues? So how do, you, how do you handle these situations? Yeah, I usually discuss it. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I've managed this skill yet, um, so I'm not sure if I'm the right person to ask advice to, um, but generally I do find it helps to just have, having seen more patients yes. and just experience helps. Um, and also talking to colleagues, yeah. involving them into these conversations, either bringing them into the conversation, yeah. if you foresee that it might be an emotional or, unhappy, or happy one, uh, or reflecting on a conversation with colleagues. Yeah, and I, I think we are talking about two different levels of emotions. I think if you are working as a pet physician, I think you, the, the emotional distance is really hard to control. Yeah. 
And I think the learning process is much longer. And if you are a young woman, or maybe you have one or two childs, I, I think it's even worse. It's really, really difficult to, to, to separate it from your own situation. And personally, I even think that if I ever get to the level of not being sad when I have to tell a child that they have cancer or that when I have to bring them bad news, uh, that's when I should quit my job. Yeah. It's also a part of the job that you are, that you need to accept and that's just intrinsically relating to this type of profession. But for the young, for the young becoming hematologists, or for for the young residents and students, um, I think it is a good advice to to be patient with yourself. It's a learning process. You need some time. You need some situations to learn from. And I think it is really important to to talk to your colleagues, to nurses, um, to people who understand the situation and are maybe more experienced and give you a good advice or or let you know this is not your fault, this is not your mistake, you did nothing wrong, and we can talk about it. I think that's very important. So it's really like good advices. Um, another thing that we were thinking a little about, how, I mean, you were a little bit talking about it, but, but how do you cope with um, patients with different uh, social or cultural uh, background? I mean, does that do you have special ways of doing this or or special advices you can give i think it's very cultural for example lots of turkish physicians want to go abroad to the united states or, or where they can find better resources for research but i always tell them you can never be as good a physician in another culture as you can be here because of, of that reason particularly we, I can understand the cultural background, the expectations of a patient very easily in my own culture. I've grown up in Turkey, I've studied, I've, I've always been there and I've been a physician there all my career. It's, it's, it's very important to understand the culture, their expectations. And if you don't have that uh, knowledge, I don't know how you could do it. And then I, I come from a region with really diverse uh, cultural backgrounds, cultural... So, so you know each of these different cultures, yeah. because I mean, there must be yeah. subcultures. In, yeah. Yes, there are, but I think, it, obviously I don't know all, but I know the main rules and I, I got familiar uh, with them, especially uh, after a few years of being a physician. Yeah. I guess you also have a, a multicultural uh, society, right? So you must... Yes. So, with this, yeah. I think recognizing the fact that there are cultural differences is the most important thing and that I might not fully, that I'm bringing my own cultural background and that might prevent me from fully understanding what this patient wants or needs. So actually actively asking feedback as uh, trying to understand the fears and the question that a person might have, which might be completely different from what I would expect them to want to know. Uh, for me, that's one of the crucial parts of, uh, of any patient's conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is another important issue. And I think we, we, we are on an, an, a global, um, we have a global situation with lots of migration. I think we, we get used to more different social and cultural background. And I think it's, it's as we said, it's, it's really important to recognize or to have a kind of awareness. This is a patient having a different cultural and social background. 
and how far can I go to adapt myself to 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 get into his um, situation to understand him better on the other hand it's again a question of balance because um, if you have to make a diagnosis if you have to explain a therapy if you have to manage the patient then you also have to use your own cultural um, um, uh, tools that you have or you, or you are not able to, to do something else because you are here in the Turkey or in Germany or the Netherlands. Um, but I think this is a very important aspect. And we, when I see my patient, patient list in the morning and there are new patients, I'm always looking, um, is there an issue I have to address because this person is coming from a different country and might have a problem also with language, yeah. so I was thinking could yeah. also be a yeah. big barrier. Yeah. Can I just add a small uh, point on the immigrants? You obviously have lots of immigrants in Turkey from Syria and Afghanistan. What I see is that immigrants lower their expectations to an incredible really low level. But if you want to see them at their own place, at, at where, where they are, the expectations are completely different. For, for a patient residing in Turkey, but as you know, in Turkey, there are very minorities. They expect to get the right treatment. Their expectations are very high. But if they went to another country, the expectations would be very low. So you said you asked what their expectations were, and the patients were happy with that. In some cultures with us, it's not, it would not be acceptable, expect, uh, acceptable for the patient. The patient thinks that the doctor should know yeah, exactly. Yeah, expectations. Yeah. I live here. Yeah. Why am I not yeah. being understood by the physician that works here? There are some conflicts yeah. in that issue. But I don't uh, have that problem with immigrants. They they know that uh, there is a cultural difference, and I, they they respect that I cannot understand their uh, expectations very well. But it's difficult, right? Because there might okay. also be patients, and I've been in one of these situations where I was talking to a father who was not accepting the female doctor. Yeah. And there you get into these complications. There are, yes, there, are, there are limits. Yes, there are limits. Should I then have them be treat, mm -hmm. transfer them to one of my male colleagues or do you force them into your own cultural system? Those are very difficult. It's the same, it's the same with patients who are not allowed. A, a female patient from Saudi Arabia coming with her sons, coming with her husband, not able to talk. You are not allowed to talk to her. You have to talk to to her husband, and and you are not allowed to examine her. Yeah, you are not allowed to be alone with her, or or these men, uh, these male patients do not accept you. Yeah. yeah, and I think there is also a huge difference depending on the culture with regard to compliance. Okay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Incredible. Yeah. But I also think you know when you have, for example, the family to translate, you're never sure what was the message that were yeah. given on to, to the patient. And I find that very, very difficult to cope with, actually. It, yeah. That's where language apps come in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even if you tell the group of people in front of you that you have a language app, then I think the chances of them doing a, a false translation will be much, much, much lower. But do you use, use translators normally in the situation or? We, it, it depends. Yeah. So, um, 
for short communication, if there's, for example, we have a lot of Ukrainian patients in our institution, though, yeah. for short communications during morning rounds, we usually use apps, yeah. like Say Hi or any one of the other apps, which actually work brilliantly. Mm -hmm. um, and then on a weekly basis, we have a, a live translator come into the hospital and actually help us communicate. And the good thing is, with regard to migration, we do have nurses from everywhere. We yeah. have colleagues yeah. from everywhere. Yeah. And then you call your colleague, and I need a translator, yeah. which is um, really very yeah, helpful. Yeah, 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 very yeah. helpful. Because if you if you if you hire uh, a professional translator, they often do not have the medical background. No. No. Exactly. And I always have a bad feeling. I I, I think, oh, what is this person now telling? Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. 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 And yeah, if it's done by a colleague, it's totally different. And what about social background? Does that mean anything in your country? I mean, uh, do do you have a public healthcare system, or or how does it work? And so we do have a public healthcare system, which is, I think, uh, very very good in Germany. Um, so um, there is no issue with regard if if I diagnose a patient A or a patient B with a different social background, the diagnosis. Um, is guiding me in my recommendation for yeah. the treatment. So I, I'm not really limited by um, healthcare issues, which is, I think, luxury because yeah. it is not the case in every country, every country, and this shouldn't be the case in, in, in no country. But I think you told me you also had private patients. So what is that then? Yeah, the private patients, they have a kind of advantage that they will be seen by the head of the department or by the assistant professor by the expert, um, but there is no difference in the, in the way you treat them. They have to pay more, that's the big difference. Um, and it's not always um, a, a privilege or an advantage of the head of the department is seeing you are a very experienced. <laughs> because they have not seen patients yeah. for several years. Yes, that could happen, <laughs> that would happen. But it's, the, it's the, the general service which is behind this German system and the private system. But important, no difference in the way you treat the patients. I think the Netherlands is very similar to Germany, except we have, don't have this private system. It's the same in Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the power. It's completely similar to Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of say that going to the private care is like traveling with business class. You don't <laughs> have to wait. It's more comfortable, but the, the plane goes to the same destination. That's kind of nice. So they will get a, a private room or what, what, what's the... But yeah, it's more comfortable. Yeah. They don't have to wait in line because their appointments are well set. Uh, and, and those are the advantages of private care. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They have single rooms sometimes. Um, yeah, these are these little things. Maybe they have more options for lunch or dinner or uh, selection. but. But at the end, I mean, at the end, the management and the treatment is, is the same. Yeah. Okay. And then I think one thing we have not really touched about is, is how, how do you cope with losing a patient and how you could do communicate in the flight for, with the patient? Post? I, maybe I can start again because this was also a big yeah, issue that we had with the students and the, and the young residents. And I think for them, um, this was the most important one and the most challenging one. Um, how to how to tell a patient that he has really a worse diagnosis and that there is probably no um, therapeutic option for the patient and, and, and 
different ways how patients deal with that. Yeah. This is also an issue that some people are um, um, completely neglecting or denying what happens. Um, some people react very controversial and strange. Oh, I'm happy that I know that. And it, 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 yeah, it, I think this is something, this is depending on the situation. But what is clear and what we also said is it, for us, it is very important to always be very transparent and to be honest to the patient, to tell him the truth and, um, and to involve him and discuss with him what is possible, what kind of options do we have and, um, and to offer to talk several times if it's not enough for the first time to involve the family if it's needed. Um, so this is the one side and then we coming back to the, to the emotional distance. I mean, we, we know that we are working in a field with diseases that cannot be cured in many, many cases. And we have to deal with the situation that we lose our patients. And as I said the days before, I think another really important aim for me is to 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 provide quality of life for them, okay. to be open to them, and to be a, a good doctor for them. And so I think this is one of these situations that's also very much culturally dependent. Yeah. Um, in the Netherlands, we are very direct when it comes to communication, and that also applies to these kinds of situations. So we, I'm generally very direct in explaining the prognosis of a patient. And if that means that that prognosis is poor, I need to be very explicit about that so that I'm sure that they know. Um, and to be really honest, I think most patients do know even before I yeah. tell them. Yeah, I think so, you're right. Yeah. It's very rare for me to have this conversation and it being a complete surprise for the patient or their families, usually. But these are often patients that have undergone multiple rounds of treatment in my center before we get to this conversation. And usually they kind of already feel that things are going downhill. Um, and me and having that conversation might actually sometimes be a relief for them because now we can actually actively talk about that. and start making plans on how to still give proper care. So so, so, so what you're saying also that this is sort of a gradual process. Yeah, it is. Yes. Or, yeah. yes, of course, setting a, a diet, making a diagnosis, yeah. which has a poor prognosis, is a different conversation yeah. from telling, or in my case, is often a different conversation at a different time as opposed to the conversation of telling it the patient that they're actually going to die, yeah. or that there's no cure at all, and there's usually quite a long period treatment period in between those two yeah. conversations, yeah. during which you really build up a, a relationship with that patient and their family, which also helps you have that yeah. final conversation, yeah. which is often not the final one. And so I would like to say that establishing the patient and the physician trust during that treatment period makes that conversation possible yeah. because if, if that trust hadn't been established i wouldn't know how i would communicate uh, such situation i i fully agree but it's interesting because where i come from um there's a big wish that we quite early on had this discussion what are you going to do i mean how are you going to end your life and and i i find that very complicated i also like the process but it, it's it's a balance because also you know some some patients also like to prepare a little bit for it, you know, so, so it's, 
more how you how you tune your um, your automation, I guess. Yeah, I mean it's good to have such a process, but uh, I, I I do see a difference when you treat adult leukemia yeah. patients. You do not have the time. You don't have the process. Yeah. Yeah. They come into the hospital, and then you 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 have to tell them the diagnosis and. We are doing that in a positive way. We say, okay, this is a bad disease, but we have a lot of therapeutic yeah. options. We try to, to offer the best, what we have for you. And then you go in a very positive way after the three, four days. They have to think about it. They have to reflect. And then, then that this positive spirit, we would like to do something. We would like to be proactive. We, we offer you. You are here in best hands. And then the patients start to accept the treatment, and it's very positive. But then... What happens when the patient is refractory? He went into the therapy with a total different um, uh, yeah, um, expectation. Yeah. And then it, it becomes sometimes really difficult to let him know that the therapy was not really successful. And we have to change the strategy a little bit. And this is the information also included. Your prognosis is not as good as we thought at the very beginning. And the optimism is, is is not there anymore. These are really critical situations, and I think this means more than one conversation. This often means you go to the, you have your, you see your patients, and every day you start again the same conversation, and try to get this optimism again for a second line or whatever therapeutic option. So, it's really very difficult. And I think that there is no really clear rule how to manage that it's it's depending on so many um different issues yeah yeah but still a clear conversation so oh i thought yeah yeah absolutely so but this brings me to the last question because how do you take care of yourself mentally physically i mean in a busy working day and coming home with all this in your head i swim um so I might start right day early. Um, I'm very lucky uh, that my the swimming pool in my hometown is very located quite cl quite close to the hospital. And so I usually get up early. I go to the swimming pool. I dive in at 6.45, which Ooh. is when they open. And that means I can swim until 7.30, 7.45. And if I get out of the pool around that time, I'm right in time for morning rounds, which start at 8. And then every Friday, there's two friends of mine joining me to the pool. And then after having, our, having done our morning swim, we allow ourselves a nice coffee in the coffee shop nearby, which means that I'm half an hour late and I often miss the morning rounds. <laughs> but then realistically, nobody ever notices. So we'll have to come in with this. It's a good one. Yeah. Perhaps you? after having seen this video, they might start to notice. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> Um Similarly, we all, I also start the day early. My wife is also an infectious disease specialist. And she's a very busy physician, but she also enjoyed uh, waking up early and doing some sort of physical activity. We usually play tennis, but also we run. But now we are raising a toddler, and we are at, actually at the survival mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So instead of taking care of myself, we, we, we usually take care of the toddler, which reflects on taking care of ourselves at this moment. But uh, before having a child, it was very similar, keeping an active life, waking up early and, and getting good exercise and, and eating healthy diet. 
So I can I can let you know how this looks when your daughter is 18 or 12. <laughs> no, I mean I, I I know all these things that you should care you should do, you should do to care about yourself and how important this is. I must say I'm really bad in that. And I start my work in the morning and I really start working without having a really regular lunch time. Um, I I I work until I'm I have the feeling I'm almost done for this day coming home very late in in the evening. So um, um, maybe I have the luxury to have some coffee with some colleagues to talk a little bit, but then it's not very healthy to start your dinner at eight o'clock in the evening or at nine o'clock. So sometimes I do not really have time to do some physical things. I play tennis sometimes, but I'm getting older and my angles are not so happy about that anymore. I started swimming, um, but why would, from the mental side, what, what is really helpful for me is I have three kids and they are now more or less adult and I really enjoy to do something with them. So in the, when they come to at the weekend or sometimes they are there during the week and then going to concerts or whatever. And this is something um, from the mental side that is really helpful and keeps me young, listen to their music, <laughs> try to understand what they are doing. But it's absolutely right. I think we have to keep this little space for us where we do something like um, you are doing sports and on a regular basis you are doing that and I think this is something we should leave room for that. It's very, very important because it makes your mind free. Yeah. And what about the weekends? Do you have the weekends only? Not always. No. So there's weekend shifts. Yeah. Um, pediatric bone marrow transplant is a small team. We're seven, seven transplanters so that means that we have a, I have an evening or a night shift every week basically um, yeah so then I still but then still with my colleagues we sometimes just make sure that we back up for each other so if my colleague wants to do yoga I sometimes just take the phone calls during that one hour and nice. the, the other way around you should come to us our colleague <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, yeah. <laughs> well, and I had a colleague who actually had one of these the toddlers, and I lived close to the uh, to the hospital, and she actually had issues sometimes finding a babysitter. And then realistically, it's very rare for us to have to go, go into the hospital during the evening or in the night. So I was the one backing up in case that happened so that she could just yeah. end on with her family. So I think as a team, yeah. aiming there for each other and... Sometimes doing very small things that can help out the comic massively are important too. Yeah, yeah. Weekends are not mostly family time for us, but uh, we try to find three to four hours of time to work. And other than that, we are just spending time as a family. And the weekends are uh, happy. Yeah, weekends are happy. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. I can tell I always used to work all the weekends, but then I figured out during COVID, if I was also, I was just sitting in front of the computer all the time. So I'm giving myself a day off every week. And so it's usually Saturday, Sunday, depending on the weather, so I can go bike. With that, I think I will end this session. And now you know all about us. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much.